Well, the Lord is great. I hope that you believe those words that you sing. Uh, tonight, as we look at his greatness, tonight as we look at the, the strategy we have to stand against the one who is our enemy, I, I want us to remember it all rests on how great God is. So with that said, we remain standing, and let me read for you 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. Listen now to God's word. The text that reads, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete." Let's stop right there and have a seat. Those are some, that's some heavy language there. There's some aggressive language there. And if you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, we are working our way up to the armor of God. If you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, we've been walking through Ephesians for uh, over a year now. And in that time, we've covered every verse, and now we're kind of at a pause point, and we're right at the chapter 6, verses 10 through uh, the, the end of the chapter section. And, and that section is typically known as the armor of God. But before we enter into talking about what the armor of God is, we've been spending the last few weeks understanding the nature of spiritual warfare. We've been talking about the enemy that we have. In the last few weeks, we've been talking about how we need to see our entity, enemy for who he is. This enemy who is Satan. This enemy who is the devil. This enemy who is the accuser and the deceiver and the tempter. We've, we've understood who he is and how Christ, Christ, even though Satan wants to deceive, Christ is the truth. Even though Satan wants to tempt, Christ is our help. And even though Satan wants to accuse you, Christ is your advocate who stands before the Father. This is what we've seen. And so now we get to a spot where, okay, we know our enemy. Now we're turning our attention and we're looking at our battlefield. You know, the, the series is called, I Once Was Blind. I want you to see that there is a battlefield today, a battlefield laid directly before you, and you need to know how to navigate the battlefield. A few months ago, I was, uh, I was in, uh, in a police officer's car. It was a ride-along, so don't get too worried about your pastor. I was, I was on a ride-along, and as I was on this ride-along, the officer was explaining to me how young police officers, one of their key factors in succeeding in the job— this kind of might blow your mind. One of the key factors for a young police officer in succeeding in his job is to know the roads of Longview. He said, you, 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 you can take a, a great officer, someone who is, they, they understand all the other elements of, of police work. They can be really fantastic in every area of the job, but if they don't know how to navigate the roads in the quickest way from point A to point B, if they don't know where different places are in our city, it doesn't matter how good they are at all those other things. They will not make it as a police officer. They need to know the terrain. They need to know the land as it's mapped out before them. And I want to propose to you today that the same exact thing is true for you spiritually. You might be really good at reading your Bible. You might be very faithful at coming to church. 
You, you might do great kind of ministry and great kind of service, but when the enemy, when he begins to play his attack against you, when he begins to scheme and deceive and tempt, if you do not know the battlefield, you're going to find discouragement and defeat waiting, waiting around the corner. That's why today my... My burden for you, my desire for you this evening as we gather and as we consider this, I want you to see that the spiritual battlefield is your mind and it is one with truth. This is my heart for you today, brother or sister in Christ. If you are here today and you have trusted in Jesus and his death and resurrection, if you are someone who your sin has been forgiven because Jesus died and rose again, this is what I want you to know. Young or old, long time following Christ or brand new to following Christ. Your battlefield is your mind and the way you win the battle is with truth. Do you know, do you know the winning strategy when you step onto that battlefield? When the enemy sets his sights on you, do you know what the battle even looks like? In fact, do you know what you have been commanded to do while you're in the battle? See, that's what we're going to learn together this evening. In fact, we're, we're going to do really four things. Tonight, I want, to, I want to look at the nature of this battlefield. I want to inter- introduce our weapons. We're not going to spend a lot of time on those. We will over the coming weeks. I want you to receive your objective when it comes to the battle. I want you to know what the victory looks like. And finally, I want you to learn three key strategies that come right from this text for how you can engage successfully in spiritual warfare. I'm going to tell you, over the last few weeks, I've wanted to preach this message at the end of every sermon I've preached so far. Because this ties together everything we've talked about over the last few weeks. So I'm so excited you're here. I'm hopeful you're here. I hope you have your notes out and your pencil sharp, fresh ink in your pen. And I hope you're ready to go. Now, if you're ready to go, let's open up our Bibles. 2 Corinthians is our text tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Turn with me there and let's begin to walk through this. And let's start with the nature of your battle. See, our battle, your and my, our battle, our battlefield, it is spiritual belief. Spiritual warfare, the battlefield is spiritual belief. 2 Corinthians 10, 3, this is what the text says. It says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Now, I, I want us to understand what this is saying and what it's not saying. I want us to understand this is teaching that, first of all, our physical life remains important. The text says we walk in the flesh. Now, this word flesh is used different ways in the scripture. You might be sitting there thinking, I've heard this word flesh before, and it's a bad thing. Flesh is a negative thing in the scripture. Well, yes, but the the way a Bible writer or an author uses a word is influenced by its context. And so we have to understand context to understand the, 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 the way he's using the word. It's kind of like this. If I were to say, it's a beautiful day outside, right? If I were to say, sun's out, gun's out, what would you be thinking? Would you be thinking that uh, we're walking around with our, with our rifles or with our pistols just walking around the streets showing whatever, whatever sidearm we have? Or would you think that it's time to wear a tank top and show that we've been in the gym this week? 
Sun's out, gun's out. You know that guns, in that sense, it means your arms, your biceps, because you're, you're a buff, right? The context gives definition to the word. Same exact thing in the text here. He says, though we walk according to the flesh. Flesh can be spoken of in the scripture talking about a sinful nature. That's a negative view of it. But flesh can also mean our body, <laughs> our bones, our, our, our muscles, the, the fact that we live in a physical realm with a physical body. And that's what he's talking about here. Some people read this and they, they, they twist it. Remember we see the enemy, he likes to twist scripture. They say, well, you know, Paul walked according to the flesh. This means that he lived a fleshly lifestyle. This means he, he was given to do whatever he wanted to do. He was, he was willing to sin, and, and he, was, he was happy to sin. But look, if we were to go all the way back, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul has already established that his life is a life of godliness. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12. He says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity, and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. Paul is saying, look, you've seen how we've lived. We've had a godly sincerity. We've not been using you or abusing you. We've not been giving to our desires or the flesh. Instead, we've been operating with sincerity and integrity. We've been living our lives in a, in a way that is holy and pleasing to God. So we know here Paul is not saying, you know, we walk in the flesh, that means we can go and sin all day long and it's, it's okay. No, he, he's talking about the flesh as in these, these bodies. He, he's reminding us that these, these bodies we have, they still matter. In fact, in the early church, there was a lot of what's called the Gnostic heresy. That's kind of a weird word. But Gnostic is this idea of, of a secret knowledge and the Gnostics were oftentimes uh, in the background, a lot of the biblical writing, and they're in the background teaching that the physical does not matter, and all that matters is the spiritual. In fact, some of them would take it so far as to say, you know, the, the, the physical doesn't matter at all, so you can sin as much as you want. You can live a fleshly life, a sinful worldly life, as long as you have this secret special knowledge, you'll be just fine. No. I want us to understand, when we talk about spiritual warfare, we're going to talk about the battlefield. The battlefield is spiritual, but listen very carefully. This is not to say that your physical life does not matter and you can do whatever you want. That, that's not what it teaches at all. Your physical life is important. In fact, the world that we live in, it is important that we engage physically in doing good. I mean, that's what Jesus did. He healed. He cared. He taught. The same things that we are to do, we are to care for those around us. Your physical life is important. But, but more than that, your physical life is not the battlefield. See, this is where we need to make some distinctions. Yes, we walk in the flesh. But our enemies are not people that have been deceived by Satan. Our enemies are not people in a cult our enemies, they, they are, in a sense, we were enemies with them, but we're enemies with them and the ideologies and the philosophies and the belief systems that they have. That's what the battle is. It's against false ideas. In fact, back to verse 3, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. See, we don't wage war against people. If your coworker is an atheist, you don't wage war against them. 
you're going to see in a little while you wage war against their ideas. If your neighbor is a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness, you don't wage war against them. You, you go to battle with their beliefs. This is the point of this text here. In fact, he says waging war. This means to be engaged in battle or to serve as a soldier. Listen, church, you are a soldier for Christ. There is no such thing as a, a Christian who is a pacifist when it comes to spiritual warfare. You are not called to say, oh, I'll let, my, I'll let the pastor explain truth to people, but I'm just going to sit on my hands and never talk about truth. No, you are part of the war. You are to be engaged in this, this spiritual warfare that is a, a warfare against false ideologies. In fact, back to Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians 6, verse 12. You've heard this every week for the last month now. I'm sorry. I hope you love it though, right? Here's what it says. For though we... Or excuse me, for we do not wrestle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This word wrestle, it means to struggle or to engage in a challenging contest. Now you and I, we wrestle against these cosmic forces. This is really, we wrestle against forces, demonic forces of evil. We wrestle against Satan and the fallen angels. But, but our wrestling is not that we go and we get into the ring and, and the, the ref comes in and he says, are you ready? And then he looks over at Satan and he says, are you ready? Oh, let's get it on, right? That, that's not what we do in that moment. Instead, we are wrestling with, with the deceptions and the temptations and the accusations. That is what we wrestle against you see, the battlefield is spiritual. Now, what does that mean? Well, the battlefield is spiritual, so our weapons are true spiritual beliefs. If, if the battlefield is spiritual, we need to bring spiritual weapons onto the battlefield. Verse, verse 4, 2 Corinthians 10, 4, it says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Maybe you've heard the saying, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. You heard that saying before? It's quoted in movies. It's actually, I, I looked it up, it's been quoted in like 20 some odd movies since like 2020. But it actually comes from a 1987 film, The Untouchables, right? Uh, I don't know if I've ever even seen it. But I looked up the, the clip on YouTube today, and it's kind of a graphic <laughs> clip, so maybe not a recommendation, right? Uh, but, but that's exactly the line in it. You brought a knife to a gunfight. Same thing here. You should not think that you can bring your, your earthly, physical, weapons to a spiritual battle. They will not work. You will find yourself, if you are reliant on your physical abilities, if you are reliant on yourself, you are going to find yourself outweighed, outmaneuvered, outclassed, and ultimately you will be knocked out if you are reliant on your physical abilities when it comes to spiritual warfare. But fortunately, that's not what we bring to the battle. We don't bring ourselves and our abilities. Instead, for those in Christ, I'm just going to pause there for a moment. For those in Christ, you bring spiritual weapons to the battlefield. 
Now, I know there's quite a few people that come regularly to Valley and you're enjoying our community here. You love being part of this church. You love hearing things and considering Jesus, but you have yet to trust in Christ. I just want to lay it out there very clearly. If you are not in Christ, you don't have the armory that the one in Christ does. You need it to be successful, but, but you, yet, you don't have it yet. See, this teaches that our weapons are divinely provided. Our weapons, for those in Christ, part of the blessing of being in Christ is you now have spiritual weaponry. They are divinely appointed or provided. The text says, for our weapons are of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. I want to remind you what your weapons are not. In fact, if you were here with us on Easter weekend, we talked about what our weapons are not. Easter weekend, we talked about how Satan, he wants to blind the mind of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the truth of the gospel of grace. He wants to keep people who don't trust Christ from trusting in Christ. But because of that, sometimes Christians, they start to become self-reliant. Sometimes churches, they start to build their ministry and they use it, they build their ministry using weapons that are of the flesh. Let me remind you of the 2 Corinthians, same book, chapter 4, verse 2. The Apostle Paul writes, he says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of what? Of truth. We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He, he, this, this goes back to our warfare. Warfare is one with the open statement of truth. Paul says, he says, we renounce disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. I've reflected on this a bit since Easter, and I've, I've actually cleaned it up a little bit. I want to give you the four E's of what I'm going to call errant ministry. The four E's, these are the physical weapons that you might be tempted to bring into spiritual warfare. Here's the first one. It's entertainment. This is when you want to entertain someone toward Christ. This is, we need to have as much hype as we possibly can. We want to have as much showmanship. We want to be as, as uh, bring as much ingenuity to our worship service as possible. Let's get the laser lights and the fog machine. Let's make this a, a hyped up experience. That's not going to win the spiritual battle. Another one I would say is emotionalism. This is the appeal to your desires. I remember on Easter, I mentioned, you know, this is when you come and the preacher, he, he sounds good. He makes you feel good. You leave out, you leave the door, just, you know, you're, you're walking on the clouds every time because you're so awesome. He, he works over your emotions, but your emotions are not what wins spiritual warfare. In fact, in my house, we have a line that we use all the time. We've been using it for years. Your emotions are real. Your feelings are real, but they're not always true. <laughs> you know, learning how to distinguish that is one of the greatest ways to grow in your faith. Your emotions are real, but they're not always true. If you just are trying to have an emotional experience for spiritual warfare, you will not win. The third one is what uh, I call entrapment. This is bait and switch. <laughs> 
This is when we trick people into coming to church. We trick people into praying a prayer. We trick people into walking an aisle or to raising their hand. We, we should not entrap someone. We should not bait and switch anyone. And the final one is what I'm going to call ego, egotism. Pride. Relying on charisma. Making it all about a person or a personality rather than about truth. Listen, all of us can be tempted in different ways to rely on fleshly weapons, but fleshly weapons are not how we go about spiritual warfare. We have a far stronger weapons. Our weapons have divine power. Let me just give you a preview of our weapons. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 through 17. says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. There's weapon. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. There's another one. And having as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of grace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You realize each of these items listed in the armor of God are gifts given? I mean, just think about this. All of these are gifts given. In fact, the term armor of God, the of God is a, if you want to get grammatical, it's a genitive of source. It means this is where the armor comes from. It comes from God. What, what comes from God? Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. These are all gifts of God. This is your armor. This is how you go about spiritual warfare. Now, in the coming weeks, we will explore each of these individually. But what I want you to see here is that your weapons, they are divinely provided, and our weapons have divine power. Not only are they provided by God, but our weapons have divine power. Look at the end of the verse. It says, but our, they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, the best way I can put this is, these weapons, properly used, allow you to stand against the attacks of your enemy. See, here's, here's the plain truth. If, if it's just Mike, if I have to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with a demonic force, I'm going to tell you right now, he's going to mop the floor with me. <laughs> no contest, right? I mean, think about this. These demonic forces, they're not eternal, but they've been around a lot longer than I have. They've been tricking and deceiving mankind a lot longer than I've been around. They are experts at spiritual warfare. So if it's just me, and if I am relying on only myself and my intelligence and my charisma and my you know, personality or my own wisdom, it's not going to be much of a battle. It's not going to go a full round. This is why Paul writes, again, 2 Corinthians, same book, chapter 3, verse 5. It says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Look at this. But our sufficiency is from God. You have a sufficiency. You have the ability to, to stand against the attacks of the enemy. 
But it's not you because you're so special or because you're mama's favorite. It's you because you have been given divine weapons that have divine power. See, your spiritual battlefield, your battlefield is spiritual. Your weapons are spiritual. So this means you have an objective. And guess what? Your objective is also going to be spiritual. You see, your objective, our objective, is the destruction of false spiritual beliefs. This is your objective. If you are part of, I want you to think about this. You are part of an elite squad of not Navy SEALs, but you are, you are a spiritual elite squad, and your job, your objective, your mission is to destroy something. But you're not going in and, and placing C4 and dynamite. Your mission is to destroy spiritual strongholds. Look with me, verses 4 and 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We tear them down. It says we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is what you destroy. I mean, you, know, just, you, you put on the face, you know, the face cover and you put on your little beanie and you put on your camo and you get all armored up and you go in and you destroy strongholds. Well, what are these strongholds? What, 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 what should we know about these strongholds? No, I want you to see three spiritual truths about these strongholds. First of all, spiritual strongholds, they are false belief systems. Your job is not to go and blow up a building that has an opposing view of Christianity. Some Christians in the past, they have thought that way. They have seen the, the heinous evil of abortion, and they say, we're going to go and take out an abortion building. We're going to blow it up. That is not the Christian strategy. I want to be so clear. <laughs> Let's just be very, very clear. That is not a Christian strategy. Your objective is to destroy spiritual strongholds, which are false belief systems. This word fortress this word fortress is it's a word that is used to describe a, a, a stronghold. That's translated stronghold here. It's used to describe outside of the Bible. It's used to describe a prison or even a tomb. Sometimes it's used to describe something that holds people safe and secure when a city is under siege or under attack. This is what a stronghold is, a fortress. And you are meant to destroy these kind of fortresses. He says, not only do we, we destroy strongholds, verse 5, he says, we destroy arguments. Arguments can mean a ver variety of things. It's, this, these are things that are speculations, ideas, uh, speculations, or, or it's any and all thoughts that are contrary to God's word. Speculations would be um, opinions or reasons or philosophies. It's psychologies or perspectives. It's different viewpoints or even different religions that stand in contrast to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a, a large kind of umbrella term. Any kind of argument that stands in contrast to Jesus as the only Savior. And then it uses the phrase lofty opinions. This is actually, you could translate it exalted things. 
you can almost have a picture of, of a paganistic idea. When a pagan would have a, a, a statue that would be exalted and then they would bow down to it. Or they, they would have a, a household item, a household pagan temple, an altar where they would put the item on. But this is really anything that is exalted and valued above God. Really, all of these together mean that we destroy false worldviews. False worldviews that will say things like, you know what, the material world is all there is. False worldviews that will say that nature is everything and everything is nature. False worldviews that say that there is no God. The false worldviews of secular humanism or philosophies of the world. The false worldviews of any belief system that fails to meet the standards of the scripture. False worldviews, we've talked about them for a number of weeks now. False worldviews that lessen the identity of God or the identity of Jesus or, or mix up who they are. Last week we mentioned Mormonism, Jehovah Witness. This is any kind of works-based religion. You can include in this Roman Catholicism. Seventh-day Adventism gets dangerously close with all of the extra rules and regulations that are outside of the Scripture. This is any kind of worldview that does not stand firmly on Jesus and his death and resurrection alone as the only way to the Heavenly Father. And this is what we are to destroy. These false worldviews would include the spirit of the age that we live in right now. The spirit of, of rampant sexuality and perversion. This, this, uh, this age that we live in that really has exalted things, exalted items, lofty items. You know what those are? Self. Where self is God. I do whatever makes me happy. This is what we must stand against. One author calls these fortresses citadels of sin. Citadels of sin. This is what you destroy. This is what you stand against. This is what you resist. You know, this week, my family, we were at Cannon Beach for a few days at a, at a pastor's conference. We had a wonderful time until my, my son fell and, and hurt himself pretty bad. But uh, the day before the accident, um, Asher and I, everyone else went on and did other things. So Asher and I went to the beach, just the two of us, dad and his eight-year-old son, right? And we went and we, uh, you know, what do you do on the beach? You build a sandcastle, Right. So all we had is a bucket, so we didn't have very many fancy tools, and so it wasn't the most elaborate sandcastle, but we built this giant fortress, and it had a huge moat, and we even lined the, the moat with a extra sand as like a rampart, and then we reinforced them with, with stones that we found on the beach, and it had uh, kind of a, uh, a canal leading out into the ocean. In fact, I think I might have a photo of it, maybe. Yeah, there it is. You can see it in the background. You can see me in my hoodie because it's windy, and Asher just, you know, a little boy, just no shirt because he doesn't need one. It's, it's on the beach, Dad, right? We, we built that in the afternoon. And the next morning, after the tide had come in and gone out, there was not a trace of it left. It was completely destroyed. We actually called it the Freeman Fortress. But it's no more. But, but, but this text, this text is teaching us that, that these spiritual strongholds are systems of false belief that you must destroy. 
you must not believe them. You must not let them make their way into your worldview, into your perspective. You must destroy. Second truth about these spiritual strongholds. Not only are they systems of false belief, but spiritual strongholds are built by demonic activity. They are built by demonic activity. You understand, this is how the enemy wants to deceive you. The the, the enemy of your soul, Satan, he is very, very religious. He loves religion. He loves religion. He, he wants you to have an elaborate view of religion, and he would love for you to have an elaborate view of religion that builds, bases itself on you being good enough. The word for religion actually is built off of the Latin word, which means to bind back. Some people say that this idea of religion is man's attempt to bind themselves back to God. And so when you look at all the religions of the world, what do you see? They all boil down to one thing. Here is everything you need to do to be approved of by God. Here's everything you need to do so that God will accept you. And these are all built on demonic activity. They want to deceive you into thinking you can be good enough, or they want to deceive you into thinking that God will never love you. Either way, they're thrilled. They want to deceive you into thinking that there's not an afterlife, or they want to deceive you into thinking that when you die, you become a disembodied spirit and you just roam around the earth. In fact, oftentimes when I do uh, my classes where people just can ask any question they want, they almost always ask, well, what about ghosts? I I love that question. You know what I think about ghosts? Are ghosts real? Yeah. Do you want to know what I think they are? I think they're demonic forces that are trying to deceive you into thinking that there is no afterlife that's eternal that you will die and you will be a spirit. And if you die and you're a spirit that just wanders the earth, guess what? You don't need Jesus. Checkmate. This is, this is the, the demonic activity that works in our world. We've looked at it. The, the demonic activity wants to accuse you. Oh, you've messed up so much, God will never love you. The demonic activity wants to deceive you. Oh, you, you must be good enough. You have to try hard enough. The demonic activity wants to tempt you. This is the enemy's game. Look at all of these end up focusing on self. Here's your third truth, though. Not only are spiritual strongholds false systems of belief, and are they, they're, built on by, or they're built by demonic activity, but listen to this. Spiritual strongholds are post-war enemy hideouts. Now, I think you're going to love this. These spiritual strongholds, these are the post-war enemy hideouts. Listen, the war is over. Let me show you this incredible text. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. It says, And you, this is going to sound very familiar. It's just like Ephesians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. This means that you were were separated from God completely because of your sin. Here's what it says. God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us, all, circle that word all, I just love that, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, how did he do this? How, how were you forgiven? Verse 14, by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What is this talking about? This is talking about how you and I, how we went from death to life. 
This is talking about how Jesus, he lived a perfect life and then he died a substitutionary death and then by his resurrection, when anyone trusts in him, not trust in yourself, not trust in Jesus and your good works or that you've done enough, but if anyone trusts in him, forgiveness, your debt is nailed to the cross now. Look at verse 15. This is amazing. This is the the spiritual reality that Jesus accomplished. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This is incredible. This is amazing. Do not miss the significance of this text. As we go about in spiritual warfare, As we are beginning to realize what spiritual warfare looks like and the enemy that has set his sights against you, listen, our enemy has already been defeated. The demonic forces have been laid out in open shame. This is someone who has just had the beatdown of a life. And they're sitting there, bloodied, exhausted, completely and utterly ruined. And Christ is standing there victorious and glorious and you are standing behind Jesus Christ in Christ. The war has been won, church. Your enemy has been paraded around as the one who has been defeated. If this were a boxing match, he's lying on the floor, knocked out. This is the reality of spiritual warfare. There is nothing in the world that can stand before the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. King of kings and Lord of lords. He has put them to open shame. And so you know what the enemies do now? They hole up in these strongholds of false religion and false lifestyles. They hold up in these strongholds of, of godless ideologies. And they're clinging to people. Clinging to deception. That they're striving to get non-believers to continue in their false belief. And they're striving to get believers to believe the wrong things about God, about Christ, and about them. That's what, that's what they do now. They want you to believe the wrong things about God, about Christ, and about you. But they've been conquered. And they've been paraded in open shame. Church, this is amazing. The, the, the spiritual, the battlefield is spiritual, right? The weapons of the warfare are spiritual. Your objective now is to destroy spiritual strongholds. Any ideology that does not match with the biblical text, any ideology that does not match with a biblical worldview, any philosophy that does not match with Christ crucified and risen. So what does this look like Practically. What does this look like in real life? What are our strategies? Let me give you strategies. If, if, you, if you're eager to engage in the spiritual warfare. See, our sp- strategy, very simple. Our strategy is to rely on spiritual truth. I want you to understand, nowhere in the biblical text are believers commanded to bind Satan. 
Nowhere in the biblical text are believers instructed to rebuke demons. Nowhere in the biblical text are believers taught to plead the blood of Jesus against evil things. Nowhere. That is not your job. Instead, the Bible says this, Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. This is what you do. You stand. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, stand firm. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9 says, resist him, the devil, firm in the faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Your job is not to bind or to rebuke or to plead the blood. Your job is to stand. Stand in the truth. This is what it looks like. And so that means you, our strategies, they're going to come right out of our text. Our strategies are all about truth. Strategy number one. Contrast every ideology with the knowledge of God. This is really a strategy when you are having conversation with someone who does not believe in Christ. Verse 5 says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. You see, here's what you need to do. You need to learn how to destroy a believer's fortress against the knowledge of God. You need to learn some of the basics of apologetics. You need to be able to recognize ideologies that are not built on truth, and you need to even be able to confront someone with that. Now, I know there are some people in this room, and you, that's like the last thing you ever want to do. <laughs> Confrontation? <laughs> but let me, let me put it this way. This is how you love someone. This is how you love someone. If we're... If we're hikers, and I'm passing you, you're coming down the mountain, and I'm going up the mountain, and you know there's a spot where the, the, the trail is really, it's got very, very loose, loose gravel and dirt, and, and you almost fell, and everyone in your hiking party almost fell, and, and I'm coming up, and you know that just right around the bend, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meet that, that dangerous spot, and you walk by, and you're just like, hey, have a good, have a good hike. You don't love me. You don't care for me. But, but, but if we're hiking and we cross paths and you say, hey man, I want you to know when you get around that corner, take it easy because there's some spots there that are really tricky and here's how I went about it and, and here's the truth of the situation. If you tell me that, you know what you, you're doing? You are showing me love. You, you might have some people in your life that you need to have some conversations with. That you need to be willing to, to answer people's objections to Christ. You, you, you might not know how right now. Listen, I, I'm going to tell you, you need to learn how to answer objections to Christ. You need to dig in and have reasons for your faith. You cannot be a Christian. Listen, I'm, we live in a day, I, I think 30, 40 years ago, that maybe we could get away with this, but you now live in a day where it does not cut it to say, I just take it on faith. As in like this magic wand. This is all, I just believe it. I want you to understand, your faith has reason. Your faith has logic. Your faith has evidence. I am convinced there is more evidence to believe in Christ than to reject him. That evidence is all over the place. 
In fact, well, there, there's a, I, I consider it a pretty popular book, and the title of it is, is I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. You, you should have books like that on your shelf. You might say, I'm not a reader. Guess what? There's this amazing thing called Audible. <laughs> there are some incredible podcasts. If you don't have reason for your faith, come and talk to me. I will give you a list of where to start. But, but listen, your job, you are engaged in spiritual warfare. You must be able to, strategy number one, contrast every ideology with the true knowledge of God. Now, you don't have to become a lecturing professor of apologetics, but you need to have some basics understood, and you need to have some basics down. This is a strategy mainly with the non-believer. Strategy number two is to capture every personal thought. Capture every personal thought. The end of verse 5 says, And take every thought captive to obey Christ. See, I, I, I understand that we, sometimes we engage with non-believers and we have to figure out how to deal with their arguments against Christ. But you know what? Most of the spiritual warfare that we experience, where is it? Right between our own ears. Most of the spiritual warfare we experience is that what we believe, our own, our own mental structures and our own plans, our own thoughts, that they, they begin to take ownership of us and, and we begin to believe the wrong things about God, about Jesus, and about ourselves. This means that we need to take every thought captive. This word, take captive, it's, it's really the idea of to take captive with a spear, Right? You know, if, if you're uh, walking down the road and someone pulls a spear out and they hold it right to you and you're like, okay, I, I, I give up, right? <laughs> you need to take every thought captive. Anytime there is a thought, whether it's involuntary or voluntary, you need to take it captive to obey Christ. Here's what that looks like. Is this the kind of thought that is in line with the Bible or not? Is this the kind of thought that pleases Christ or not? This is actually the picture of Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world. Look at this. This is awesome. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and pure. Now listen, there's so much hope in this text because this text is saying that who you are is not who you're supposed to be. It's kind of offensive, right? No, you are in the process of being transformed. Guess what? A month from now, you should be more like Christ than you are today. A year from now, you should be more like Christ than you are today. Listen, you might be saying, well, I struggle with this and I struggle with this and I don't know about this. That's fine. There's, there's never this moment where you say, okay, I have arrived. <laughs> You're always to be growing and so you should be transformed. And look what happens. You're transformed by the renewal of your mind. How does your mind get renewed? It's being renewed right now, actually. The preaching of God's word, faithfully preaching God's word, I think is one of the main ways your mind is renewed. But guess what? Your mind can be renewed every day as you open up the scripture and you read God's word over and over and over and over again. I heard someone say this past week, they've been, re they've been a Christian or in ministry for 40 years and they've read their Bible 40 times. You could do that. There is nothing stopping you from doing that. You, you can do that. You can have your mind renewed. And look what happens. That by testing, you may know what the will of God is. You can know God's will as your mind is renewed. 
Here's what that looks like practically. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to linger here for a moment. We all have thoughts that are not the right thoughts. And I would put these thoughts into two buckets that are not the right thoughts. The bucket over here is what I'm going to call the bucket of self-love. And the bucket over here is the bucket that I'm going to call self-loathing. The bucket of self-love is when we think too much about ourselves, when we focus too much on ourselves, and we focus too much on what we want. In this bucket, it's full of pride and greed and lust and selfishness. This is the bucket that allows us to think thoughts that maybe are bitter toward others. This is the, 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 the bucket that allows us to think thoughts that, that maybe are arrogant about ourselves and leads to selfishness. When you have those thoughts, you must take every one of them captive to obey Christ. So when I'm being selfish, I must humble myself and repent of that. Lord, in this moment, I want this, but in this moment, you've called me to serve. And so I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to do the hard thing. I'm going to care for my wife. I'm going to care for my kids. I know I just want to go relax, but you know what? In this moment, they need me. I'm going to serve. What kind of self-love thoughts do you need to learn to take captive to obey Christ? Where do you need to repent of your selfishness? This, this bucket over here, self-love, every thought must be taken captive to obey Christ. But, but let me take you to this other bucket, the bucket that I'm calling self-loathing. This is when you are too focused on yourself and what you do not have or what you've messed up. These thoughts you must take captive. These are the thoughts of regret. I messed up again. I'm such a failure. I'm just worthless. God, how can God ever love me? How can God ever use me? These are the thoughts of, of worry and of, of, of anxiety and of fear. What if this person says this about me? What if this person thinks this about me? What if this person treats me this way? What if I don't do good enough in this situation? What, what if I don't perform well enough in this situation? What if, what if I don't look good over here? These thoughts of self-loathing, listen. You need to take them captive to obey Christ. What does that look like? It looks like in Christ, I am made new. In Christ, I have God who is for me. In Christ, I have the love of God that will never, ever, ever be taken away. In Christ, I am whole. If I have Christ, I don't care what anyone else thinks about me. I know that's easy to say and hard to cling to, but that's what you have in Christ. Your second strategy is personal. Take every personal thought captive. One more strategy, and then we'll bring this to an end. Strategy three is to correct disobedience in the church. Let me show you one of the weirdest verses in Scripture. It's kind of hard to navigate. Verse six, though. It says, be ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Maybe you've read this before and you say, what? I mean, it, the language feels a little bit choppy. And in fact, the, the message of it, you're like, uh, what, oh, my punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete? Is this like, if I mess up, I'm supposed to flog myself? Do I need to punish my disobedience? No, this is, remember, this is written to a community, a church. 
And if you remember, the context here is there are false teachers that have made their way into the church and they are leading people away in disobedience. Here's what Paul is doing. He's saying, no, no, church, correct yourselves. Get back on the gospel. Focus on Christ. That will lead your obedience to be complete. And then in that, you should deal with, you should punish, or you should correct every kind of disobedience in the church. Well, what does this look like? Church corrections, two, two things. First of all, church correction is a response to false teachers. Listen, a church that's obedience is complete. This is a church that's mature. And so they are able to smell a rat. <laughs> they are able to tell if there is false teaching. Now, this is the job of elders of a church. Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Speaking of an elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. See, a mature church is a church that will not be led astray by false teachers. This is church correction, church discipline. This means if someone teaches something false, we should have a conversation. And listen, there are different, different degrees, right? Sometimes someone might say something wrong. That's different than someone coming up here and being heretical and being like, hey, you can earn your way to heaven, right? So we, we must be able to distinguish that. But then second thing, church correction is a response to unrepentant Christians. Every Christian sins. You've sinned this week. This is not, let's go on an, investigation, an investigative journey to make sure that we know every sin everyone does and make sure that we discipline them at every, like, let's just always be pointing fingers. no. This is speaking to Christians who are in open, blatant sin and they're unwilling to repent. 1 Corinthians speaks to this. Chapter 5, verse 11 says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone, underline this part, who bears the name brother. This is not someone in the world who doesn't trust Christ. This is someone who says, I'm a Christian, bears the name brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolatry, or, or excuse me, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, this is a tough pill to swallow sometimes, but this is one of the most important pills that we can take as a church. To understand if, if there is unrepentant sin, and there's a process for it. I don't have time to go into it tonight. We cover it in detail in our membership meeting. But if there's unrepentant sin, it must be dealt with. Not swept under the rug. Not ignored. Because this is part of spiritual warfare. This is the third strategy. The third strategy is to correct disobedience, false teaching, and counterfeit behavior in the church. Now, here's what I want to go back to. Let me land where we started. The spiritual battlefield is your mind, and it is one with truth. 
You have everything you need when you step onto the battlefield to win the war. You have truth, you can destroy false ideas, and you can take every thought captive. Let's pray. Father, this is such a helpful passage of Scripture. Father, I pray that everything we cover tonight would be so freeing to my brothers and sisters in this room. Father, I pray that we would be able to see that we step onto the battlefield every day and that we have everything we need to win. Father, I pray that you would help us to employ these strategies. Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn how to defend our faith. Father, I pray you would learn, help us to learn how to take every thought captive so that every one of us, we would not follow after self-love or self-loathing, but rather we would find our self-worth in Christ. And Father, I pray for us as a church that we would remain pure, that we would correct false belief, false teaching, and we would be willing to correct unrepentant false behavior. And Lord, as we do this, help us to do it with gentleness and love, all for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.